the new book, What's Your Food Aid, is really a follow-on and a capstone to think to what we were writing about in several previous books. Uh, and and What's Your Food Aid is really trying to synthesize what we learned about how the way we affect the land affects the health of the soil and how that affects the health of crops, how that affects the health of, of our livestock and animals, and how that all integrates up into influencing human health, whether on the scale of sustaining an agricultural society or whether on what goes on in each of our individual bodies to actually influence our health based on what gets into the food that we eat, both for the better and worse, depending on how we farm. You're listening to Food Integrity Now with your host, Carol Gervais. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Food Integrity Now. I have a really great show for you today. Today, I have David Montgomery. David is a MacArthur Fellow and Professor of Geomorphology at the University of Washington. He is an internationally recognized geologist who studies the effects of geological processes on ecological systems and human societies. His work has been featured in documentary films, network and cable news, TV, and radio, including Nova, PBS, NewsHour, Fox and Friends, and All Things Considered. Also on the show today, we have Anne Beclay. Anne is a science writer and public speaker focusing on the connection between people, plants, food, health, and the environment. She has been known to coax garden plants into rambunctious growth and nurse them back to health from the edge of death with her regenerative gardening practices. Her work has appeared in digital and print magazines, newspapers, and radio, and her gardening practices have been featured in independent and documentary films. Anne and David are married and live in Seattle, Washington. Their work includes What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health, and a trilogy of books about soil health, microbiomes, and farming. Dirt, The Erosion of Civilization, The Hidden Half of Nature, and Growing a Revolution. Today I'm going to be speaking with David and Anne about their book, What Your Food Ate. David and Ann, welcome to the show. Thank you, Carol. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited to have you on today. And before we get started, I think our listeners would really enjoy hearing a little bit more about your background and just kind of what you do. So, Ann, you want to go ahead and start? Yeah, sure. Let's see. So there's probably several different bios for me floating around out there. So this is (laughs) probably what's kind of key to me uh, and how I think and what informs my writing and so forth. So, you know, I rely a lot on my training and background as a biologist. And sometimes people say, well, what kind of a biologist are you? And, and I, that's where I say, well, you know, this is where I also bring in the big picture stuff. I'm, I'm more of the ecologically minded kind of a biologist. But uh, when you write about food, agriculture and health, you also need to um, at least have an interest in, which I definitely do, and and be able to parse everything that is also happening to the human body with our diet, with other things that are you know out there in the environment, with our genes, 
even with lifestyle factors as well. So I'm, I'm just basically a really curious person. I ask a lot of questions and biology is a really uh, fun field for me to be in, uh, in doing all of that. Okay, great. David. Yeah. And uh, I have a, I have a, a fairly different background parallel in the sense of being rooted in the world of science. I'm a geologist by academic training, a geomorphologist by specialty. And what that is, since most people have never heard of a geomorphologist <laughs> is the kind of geologist who studies the evolution of topography, how it shapes the surface of the earth. You know, the part that we live on, the part that we use, the part that affects ecology in a big way. And I got interested in soils and then ultimately in farming and food systems and human health and the, the relationship between all those by looking at how uh, land, how farming practices in effect in the past had degraded land in society after society around the world to the point where it undercut the stability of civilizations. And so I sort of came at it, this, you know, looking at and thinking about and studying soils. From the backwards looking perspective you might expect out of a geologist looking at the history of all that and then as as we i'm sure we can talk more about in the in the in the coming minutes um we started to realize that there's ways to actually fix the problems and restore soil health at a at a pace that's actually quite fast relative to the way that nature builds soils and it was the partnership with Anne that was really very central to doing that. She's a biologist, I'm a geologist. What makes healthy fertile soil? Well, it's the marriage of geology and biology. It's, it's how those two things interface. The, the dead world of geology sets up the minerals and what we need in soils and how the living world of biology helps get those out of the soils and into plants and into animals and into people. And so I got uh, very fascinated by those connections and the problem of soil degradation and its effects on societal health, ecological health, and human health are really one of the big underappreciated problems that faces humanity in the 21st century. And so Anne and I have been thinking and writing about that as we've learned more about it and dove into it. So it's been an interesting ride in uh, learning the stuff that went into um, particularly writing our most recent book, What's Your Food Ate? Yeah. Well, that's exciting. I mean, the combination of both of you and your fields, I think it just complements one another and maybe might have a tendency to have some different perspectives, uh, different ways of looking at it, which I love. So I'm excited to dig in. So I, I was going to ask this next question, but I think you just answered it is why did you write the book? Yeah, in a way, I, I can start and then Anne, you can follow up if I leave stuff out. But the, um, you know, the, the new book, What's Your Food Aid, is really a follow on and a capstone to think to what we were writing about in several previous books. Uh, and, and What's Your Food Aid is really trying to synthesize what we learned about how the way we affect the land affects the health of the soil and how that affects the health of crops, how that affects the health of, of our livestock and animals, and how that all integrates up into influencing human health, whether on the scale of sustaining an agricultural society, or whether on what goes on in each of our individual bodies to actually influence our health based on what gets into the food that we eat, both for the better and worse, depending on how we farm. So it's, you know, we, we really wrote the book as a continued part of our exploration and in digging into these connections. Uh, and it's our attempt to basically lay out the science and the evidence about why you can think about how the way we treat the land, that, that why what we do to the land, it affects our own health, both individually and collectively. Wonderful. Do you have anything to add to that, Anne? I think the only thing, the only thing I might add to that is that 
people may have thought, well, I wonder why they didn't write this, this latest book, What Your Food Ate. Why didn't they write that first? And, and that has sort of, that, that kind of lodges in my brain from time to time. And really my, my answer for that is that we didn't, we didn't know what we didn't know when we started all of this. And then with each, the completion of each book filled with, you know, ahas and epiphanies, it, the breadcrumb trail, so to speak, you know, led to the most recent book. And so now I ask, how could we not have written this one, you know, at, as the, the fourth, the fourth one in the, the group, the group. So it, it just seems so obvious to me now that this book is situated kind of right where it needs to be at the, as David said, it's really kind of a, a synthesis and a culmination of what everything else that we have written about, what are its implications and what are its consequences? We never really tackled the effects, um, for example, on the human body and human health and, and so forth in any of the other books to the depth that we did in what your food ate because after all isn't that at least in part what agriculture is all about i mean this endeavor that started almost 10,000 years ago sure it was to provide food for humanity but we certainly didn't want to be producing and eating food that would make people less healthy right right yeah. <laughs> kind of the whole idea like, kind of like we do now but. Yeah, you know, we want yield, but we want the right kinds of nutrients in the levels and combinations that dovetail and sync in the, you know, the most productive and best way possible with human biology. And so that that really was the, um, I, it, at least for me, that is why agriculture and the way we farm and how we treat the soil is so fundamentally important to civilizations and societies wherever you know wherever they are on this planet yeah well i think your timing is perfect because it, so many people are wanting to learn how to regenerate the soil and you really explain the why we want to do this mm -hmm. and i'm a homesteader so i I live on a homestead and I, I did a talk at the health and homesteading conference in Southern California recently. And I talked about the toxins in your food, but there were other people that just were masters at how, how to regenerate the soil, worm compost, you know, all, all the, all the different components. So my point is there was, there's so much interest right now because people are really seeing how we have degraded our soil and how are so many people getting sick? What's the answer? So I think your timing is perfect. Start off, what are some of the key changes that you think need to be made? What point do you want to get across to people? Well, you know, at, at the broadest level, um, I think the key point is that farming practices that help to build soil health are also aligned with helping to support human health and that what's good for the land is actually good for us too. And what we've been doing in farming for the last 80 to 100 years with what we now call conventional agriculture has been prioritizing growing lots of food over 
taking care of the health of the soil or growing highly highly nutritious food. And so I think the key, the other key point, um, you know, what we could get from prioritizing soil health is to move beyond the goal, the lofty goal of feeding the world to, to the better goal of nourishing the world. Oh, that's well put. And I think the way we do that, at least in part, two key things the way I see it are, we seem, our species always is, is I guess I'd call us the, bo the bossy species. We're always <laughs> wanting, right? We always want all the other species to do what we want them to do. And being a um, being an avid gardener and having you know raised and at, at times <laughs> maybe killed a few plants, what I've really come to realize is that we really need to let plants be plants and we need to let animals be animals and and you know and that's within both you know a wild context as well as the domesticated context of agriculture. I think when we fight with the inherent, with the biology inherent to a plant or with an animal, all we end up doing in agriculture, at least, the more we fight with that, the more we, the more we disrupt it, the more we perturb it, we find ourselves spending immense amounts of money on inputs or products that compensate for the things that we have messed up. And this is, um, you know, you think for some people, especially if they're gardeners or at all as enthralled with the botanical world as I am, you hang around plants long enough and okay, they can't talk to us, but you pay attention and you observe and you realize, oh, they have their own way of being, living, surviving and thriving on this planet. And we probably will never understand all of that to the full extent that it is out there but i these days at least i'm much more interested in letting the plant figure out how is it going to survive the drought how is it going to beat back that pest how is it going to produce seeds all the things that plants do and and in agriculture or gardening, what you're really aiming to do is support that, not boss it around, not manipulate it, but really support it. Because when we do that, that's when that's when crops yield fine. That's when they're suffused with the vast array of nutrients. And when I say nutrients, that's kind of writ large. Everything from something as basic as a carbohydrate to other compounds called phytochemicals that are both beneficial to their health and ours. And so when we, we allow that to happen, we do better by the plant and we do better by ourselves as well. And the, the same thing goes with animals. I don't imagine there's anybody who's listened to your, your interviews and, and the kind of material that you present. Nobody, you know, this whole idea of of industrial agriculture when it comes to animals is just really a bad one. It runs against nearly every single bit of biology in a ruminant animal um, that's out there. So I, I'm just in favor of letting plants be plants and letting animals be animals. Yeah, I really get what you mean. We're trying so hard to fix what we've done wrong. 
you know, a lot of times with um, growing food or whatever. And it's like, oh, I got this problem. I got this problem. We're, we're constantly in that in that fix it mode. Whereas if we did it correctly the first time, then we can let the plants be plants. So that's kind of what you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and part of letting plants be plants is they obviously plants have always had an intimate and deep relationship with the soil, you know, okay, maybe except for our aquatic plants, but you know what I mean? Yeah. And, (laughs) and this is why soil health and fully functioning soil is so important in agriculture. It, I often put it this way in my talks, really, the soil is part of the plant health plan. And when we start tinkering with that and and when it's missing parts, the plant misses out on things as well. So I really see, and this is probably, you know, this is where my ecological thinking combined with the biology comes in. When I think of plant, I don't just sort of think of a plant sitting out there. I think of a plant rooted in the soil. The soil is really a part of the plant body. And it's hard for us as you know, human beings to understand that, of course, because we're, we're not sedentary. We don't, there's no single part of our body that's resting or, um, you know, living directly in the soil. So it's a little hard for us to wrap our head around that. But I think plants are one of the best examples of just how um, embedded, you know, particular pieces of the environment or nature are in 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 both plants and animals i mean it's really the soil's really right it soils this dead thing and yet there's this living thing the plant that is really they're each a part of the other yeah that's beautiful how our food is grown obviously affects the nutrition of our food we're we're finding out more and more of that uh, i don't know if you know uh dr don huber He's a, yeah, yeah. Well, I've interviewed him a couple of times. I love that man. He told me one time that he tested some um, conventionally grown food. This was fairly recently. And he said he was just extremely appalled the lack of nutrients that were in the food. And we need to really be doing better. So um, I know you talk about the three areas of nutrition as far as the plant and and humans go. You talk about the fats, the phytochemicals, and the vitamins and minerals. Do you want to go through that and kind of explain how that all works? Well, sure. A lot of it relates to uh, partnerships that uh, rooting and uh, rooted, if you'll pardon the pun, in partnerships between plants and organisms in what's called the rhizosphere, which is Greek for zone around the roots of a plant. You know, rhizome is for the roots, sphere is an area. So that zone around the roots of a plant turns out to be areas that are just rich with microbial life, bacteria and fungi and other forms of microbial life. Life that, that Ann and I called the hidden half of nature in the book that we wrote along the way to learning what we needed to do to write what to food aid. Um, and those partnerships that plants forge with soil life turn out to be really crucial to understanding how things like vitamins and minerals are formed and get and get out of the soil and into plants and how plants make phytochemicals which are chemicals they make for their own purposes for communication and defense and to support their sedentary lifestyle but that have beneficial effects when they get into us and our bodies 
not because the plants are trying to grow things to be good for us, but because we evolved eating plants. <laughs> uh, and so there's these connections that are all sort of traced back to that relationship between the life and the soil and what makes for healthy, thriving plants that are full of vitamins, minerals, and phytochemicals. Uh, and so those partnerships that develop uh, that can be undermined by many conventional agricultural practices and, and by some traditional or organic practices as well. Um, and so with the, the essential basis of those partnerships are that plants are often putting out what are known as exudates. They exude compounds out of their roots into the soil. And what they're exuding are things like uh, carbohydrates, things like proteins, things like lipids, fats. What does that sound like? Carbs, fats, and proteins. It's food. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So plants have evolved this evolutionary strategy that's kind of like what we do here at the university if we want students to show up for a seminar. We order pizza. Uh, and, and if you put out free food, the undergrads show up. And so what plants are doing is they're recruiting microbial partners by exuding compounds into the soil that the microbes take up and eat and they'll metabolize them. And some of those metabolites are actually compounds that do things like help, help promote the health and growth of the plants, which allows them to capture more solar energy, to make more exudates, to feed more microbes. It's a virtuous positive reinforcement. Uh, and there's lots of examples of that with, with mycorrhizal fungi and bacteria in the soil that, that also will do things like um, prospect for mineral elements from the soil and bring them and trade them to the plant in exchange for some of that exudate food that the plant can provide because they can photosynthesize. Fungi can't photosynthesize. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's these partnerships that have developed that actually are crucial for getting things like mineral micronutrients into plants. Um, things like zinc or things like iron, things that we don't need a whole lot of in our diet, but we do need that little bit very much because it's involved in things like enzymes, uh, enzyme production that is very useful for maintaining our health. So there's these, these, these relationships that can be disturbed by things like tillage, like plowing. If you imagine if you have a, a fungus in the soil that is, has sent its little fungi, fungal hyphae out to get, say, zinc to trade to a plant so that they can both thrive, what happens when you plow it up? You chop up those connections. It would be like you know, disrupting the, the freeway overpasses off a freeway so you couldn't connect anywhere. It would be, you know, it sort of disrupt the whole flow and purpose of, of the mo moving of things. Um, and so uh, tillage, the overuse of nitrogen fertilizers can undermine those partnerships as well. Yeah. And, but, oh, and go ahead. No, that's right. You can, you can carry on from here. Okay. So we call these things that you, you rattled them off and Dave hit at least two of them there. We call them the fab four. So that is the micronutrients and the phytochemicals. And um, there's two other ones. And, and one is really about the balance of fats. And this is where animals and the, the animal foods in the human diet come into play. And the other, the, the fourth thing is what Dave touched on it a bit. It's the microbial metabolites. And so microbial metabolites are important in in every organism and in part this relates to the microbiome the whole world of, of microbiomes that has really come onto the scene in the last five to ten years and this is in part why it's really important that that animals are allowed to eat fresh living plants as 
as as much as they can, you know, over for as long as they can in in the season. And this allows the animal's microbiome, particularly in ruminants, so this can be cows, goats, and sheep, the heart of their microbiome is in a, the upper end of their digestive tract, and all of their microbes do the kinds of things that Dave was talking about, except, you know, for an animal. And so microbes are digesting and consuming all of this plant material that animals eat, and they are in, in turn turning it into different metabolites or into energy sources. And so this is, this is super important for animals because if we don't feed them the right kind of a diet, if they're not allowed to graze and select combinations of plants, their health starts to deteriorate. So this is where, um, and it also affects their fat balance as well. One of the things that's happened over time in the human diet is that we people don't often think about plants being the source of fats in 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 the animal diet, but they are, especially for herbivores, right? All they eat is plants. And so what we know about living and especially the leafy part of plants is that they're rich in omega-3 fats. These are beneficial to the animal and they're also beneficial for us. And when they're eating a diet that's got, you know, like I had mentioned, an abundance of living plants, the balance of fats, so these omega-3s that are in the leaves, as well as another kind of fat called omega-6s, you get the right ratio that the animal is eating when they're on that kind of a diet. And that ratio of fats, often called the omega-6 to the omega-3 ratio, that transfers through into their meat and their milk, and that then transfers through into our bodies. And so this is super important when you look at the role of these two fats in um, our immune response to everything from COVID to wound healing to dealing with abnormal cell growth. And it's, so it's just there's a lot more in the book about the importance of this balance of fats that we bring into our bodies through through our diet and then just the last thing is about microbial metabolites and we really need to broaden how we think about nutrients because it's not just the kinds of things that fuel our growth and development you know from a little tiny egg clear into an adult sure that's that's really important when you're young and when you're growing but by the time you reach adult Hood, really the name of the game is how do you maintain all of this biomass that's been created through you know the first 20 or so years of life and that's where microbial metabolites enter the picture again and again there's more more on the book more in the book on this but there's just sort of a range of compounds and molecules that are out there that that soil microbes are producing, plants are taking them up, and that's how they come into our diet. One of these compounds is um, an unusual amino acid called ergothionine. It turns out that this has all sorts of, I'll just call it, they're kind of, it's this sort of grouping of compounds that have like super janitorial and fix-it abilities in both plants in animals and in human beings and that it's made you know 
out there in the soil by a soil microbe, all of a sudden that's how you, I think, can get people interested in why we need to turn the health of the soil around. Because when the soil microbiome is, you know, down and out or not functioning properly, all of these other things that we need to have in our crops and our animals are we're running low or we're running short on those things. And that is in part, you know, why people like Don Huber are so, um, so valuable to have around and to be able to help us shine a light on these things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and so much of our food, especially in, in this country, is grown with the agrochemical model and uh, monocrops. And it, it's, it's really, um, I mean, it's a big mess, but it is fixable. And I know some people get really frustrated because they think, well, big ag and big pharma, they, they control so much and they have so much money that how do we, how do we fight that? And how do we, you know, take back our health through changing our soil and regenerating our soil? So do you, do you have any advice for individuals who get overwhelmed by this and think, you know, it's useless? <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I can relate my own story of having gone from being sort of a, a dark green pessimist on this issue <laughs> to actually being something of an optimist that we can actually reform the food system, we can reform agriculture, and in the process, actually benefit public health, um, the health of many individuals spread across society. And, and that optimism uh, is something that I struggled with when I wrote Dirt, the first book that was uh, we wrote in looking at soil stuff that looked at the degradation of soil through past societies, but all the stuff we've just been talking about in terms of uh, the microbial partnerships with plants and the kinds of uh, compounds, the Fab Four that Anne was talking about, the vitamin and mineral micronutrients, the, the fats, the um, the microbial metabolites, the, the, those things that are all affected by farming practices, it turns out that the farming practices that we could embrace to actually enhance the content of those in our foods are things that actually also help to increase this carbon content of the soils. So there's potential, I, I hesitate to say solutions, but there's steps that can be taken to help address not only um, the human health issues, and soil health issues, but also planetary health through the climate issue, because yeah. the farming practices that can put more carbon in the ground can benefit those microbial um, partnerships that can result in higher nutrient densities in our foods. And so how might we farm to do that? It's actually fairly simple at a conceptual level. And I wrote about that in Growing a Revolution, the book that came out just before uh, What Your Food Ate. We looked at what are the practices that farmers around the world have used to rebuild the health and fertility of their soil. And what I found was that farmers who had adopted regenerative practices, soil building practices, uh, were able to greatly reduce their fertilizer use, greatly reduce their agrochemical use, their pesticide use, um, herbicides in particular for many of them, um, and, and do so while maintaining their harvests and using less diesel. So they were spending less money to grow as much crop, which made for more profitable farm, which is part of what's driving a lot of interest in agricultural communities in regenerative methods. Because if there's one things that farms typically are not these days, it's high profit margin businesses. They're like highly capitalized businesses that in a good year can do well, but not all years are good years. Um, and so I started to become a more of an optimist around these um, 
these issues because the practices that could actually be used to achieve those results are fairly simple in terms of looking at minimizing disturbance of the soil, the chemical, chemical and physical disturbance. So weaning off of agrochemicals and um, using minimal, if any, tillage, basically not plowing unless absolutely necessary. Keeping the ground covered with living crops, which translates into cover crops in many commercial farms in between the crops ones are growing. Don't leave the ground bare. Nature doesn't leave bare ground all that often. She tends to clothe herself in plants. And there's strong reasons for that that we go into in our books. And then the third issue would be to grow a diversity of crops. Um, now, the problem with that minimal disturbance, um, maximum plant coverage and a diversity of crops in terms of conventional agriculture is that's the exact opposite of what we've been teaching for 80 years in conventional agriculture, where we focus on you know, intensive disturbance, both physical and chemical, planting monocultures um, and, and not planting cover crops in between crops. But that combination of, of, of ditching the plow, um, uh, covering up with cover crops and growing a diversity of crops is really a recipe for building soil organic matter. And one can reintegrate animal husbandry with regenerative grazing practices to accelerate that process, which to me was a complete eye opener because I had always viewed cattle as a, a means of land degradation, which they mm -hmm. can be if they're grazed conventionally. Um, so there's, there's practices that are actually fairly easy at a conceptual level to think about how to build soil health that turn out to be economically attractive to farmers. The challenge is figuring out what the specific practices are to implement that vision in different regions. Because you obviously wouldn't do the same thing on a small subsistence farm in equatorial Africa as you would do on a big ranch in the Dakotas. There's right. different strategies. The common element, the common theme is, is embracing practices that prioritize building soil health. It's a, a good long-term and even medium-term uh, farming strategy. The challenge is how can, you, how can we encourage farmers to make the transition and support them while they do it because there are risks involved in terms of if you do it wrong, um, one needs to know how to uh, essentially start and prioritize and sort of figure out how to engage in those practices. But these are all overcomable challenges, I think. Yeah, great. Do you have anything to add to that, Anne? I think I would, I'm just thinking about what you said at the beginning, Carol, about the timing of, of you know, not only our book, but the stacks that it appears you you <laughs> delve into and, and read. And it's it's apparent to me that's a real sign that people are, increasingly concerned and increasingly interested, you know, way more than, you know, 50 or 60 years ago with how our food is grown. And it just seems with every, every passing decade, that concern is higher. And I think it's in part, it's higher because we have seen more and not less of agrochemical influence um, coming into the food supply. And if there were agrochemicals out there that are not harming soil health, not harming the soil microbiome, you know, the plant microbiome or the animal microbiome, I'd probably be all in favor of that. But I'm not sure the, the list of uh, negative things that, that come about due to overuse or inappropriate use of agrochemicals far exceeds um, you know, 
the cases where we're seeing, you know, long-term benefits to the environment or to health. And so that has just, that whole situation is troubling. And I think these days people, you know, at least in the last, you know, decade or so, people have gotten way more educated and way more aware of how their food is grown. And I think that's a great thing because what happens once we reach, you know, higher awareness, higher knowledge, higher education, then we can start talking like we are now, uh, but also with lawmakers from, you know, all the way from a, a local government, say a city or county council level, all the way up to the federal level. And this is really important too, because this is all these laws and policies that affect agriculture they are really sort of, you know, the that proverbial tale that is wagging the farmer dog. So farmers, just like everybody else, respond to economic incentives and so forth. And right now, a lot of those things are not lined up in in ways that are good for soil health. And but the more we learn about this, the more we talk about it with from the local level state level all the way up then we can start beginning i think to change this and i know for example um the farm bill is coming around this year this is a one of the largest pieces of federal legislation it's this giant you know willy wonka looking kind of a thing it's quite complex but i will tell you this i've seen some um some work that organizations and groups are doing around the farm bill and this time around you can't uh at least in the conservation end of the farm bill you can't read anything without seeing so the word soil or soil health pop up and this was not the case five years ago yeah, so great yeah it is it's really good because it's part of that awareness and part of that knowledge it's now out there enough that People are talking about this with a piece of, you know, major legislation. And this is a really, really good sign because we do need to, it, it's sort of like we're at the point with soil that it's, it's as, as bad as it is, what that means is that there's a ton of opportunity for improvement, right? It's like, you're not going to do a lot with say, you know, you're not going to bug someone like Simone Biles or Michaela Schifrin, you know, so the gymnast or this skier that's just broken all these records, right? They're already performing like at their top level. There's just not a lot to improve there. But, you know, you could take somebody else, you know, like me and try to turn me into a gymnast or a professional skier. I'd have a lot of work to do. There's a lot of room for opportunity. And so what I feel like when it comes to soils is, we don't have some Olympian level soils out there yet. They're, they're there on some, some farms, but what this means is there's a lot of room for practice and for improvement to get these soils functioning at um, certainly a more normal level. You know, we don't know all need to be Olympians, but there's so much opportunity for improvement right now with soil that that I think is a big motivator Mm -hmm. And that's a really good thing. It is a good thing. And the, the education around this all is is so important. Um, talk I recently gave, I, I wondered, you know, because of my audience, if I'd be preaching to the choir about GMOs and glyphosate. 
And I really wasn't. Um, I was really surprised that people really didn't understand the amount of glyphosate, not only in our soil, our bodies, breast milk, you know, been found everywhere and didn't really understand the ramifications of what that meant in their bodies and especially in their children's bodies. We, I'm the board president of Moms Across America and we tested school lunches recently and it was just abysmal. I mean, we, we knew it was going to be bad, but we didn't know it was going to be as bad as what we got. And uh, 94% of the school lunches had uh, high levels of glyphosate in them. 100% had heavy, le- heavy metal limits mm. that were like off the chart. And that's got to be from the agrochemicals that use petrochemicals, because that's where the, those are coming from. But it, it was just it was just crazy. And the limits we're talking above 6000 percent higher than what the EPA allows in drinking water. Now, if that's not a wake up call, and that's what we're feeding our children in the schools. Uh, it seems like mainstream media would pick this up and it would be, you know, big national news, but it hasn't been. But Wait. my point is, it's it's still somewhat grassroots getting this education out. And the more people know, you know, knowledge is power, and then they can make different choices. So the books like yours that can assist people that can maybe even be a little bit of a wake up call to people about about their health. And I just, I just think that's wonderful. So um, I kind of got on a little tirade there for a minute, but when it involves the kids, it's. Oh yeah. Super. Yeah. Super important. And I, I think it's a real tragedy in this country that not enough of us really understand all that is involved in growing and producing our food and and why farming practices matter so much. And I think it would be so great if every school system had some kind of a garden slash, you know, farm is maybe too big a word for a school system to think, you know, they're gonna run a farm. A school but... garden, some do, not very Yeah, many. some do. Mm-hmm. And as soon as kids, you know, you could take a little kid out to a garden plot in their school or in their community and have them grow food. And it is immediately apparent to them that what is done to the soil transfers through to that plant that they are growing. And I, it is always really helpful, I think, to start with young people because it then becomes sort of an ethic and a value for them. It's harder to start with the 60 or 70 and a 40 year old to say, oh, we need to change these things because your beliefs and your values are sort of, they're pretty set by then. And I think if we start earlier and I've always been a big proponent of getting people outside, even with something, you know, as simple as a 20 or 30 minute, you know, walk through your neighborhood or where you live because nature is really all around us and and agriculture is the kind that I would like to see practice and practice at the best farms that I've been on anyway. They are this intimate relationship that human beings have always had with nature. 
It's just that we've gone a little bit overboard and in the wrong direction in, in some respects. So I think if we can get people back in touch with nature and how that works in agriculture, it can help sort of set the foundation and the trajectory for how we want to see things change. Yeah, well said. We're going to go back to the book for a minute. So uh, you say in chapter nine, you talk about uh, herbs and medicinal plants, and that you made a comment in the book that you were wondering whether the campus that you were on, where whether the doctors and the medical students even knew about them, or if they, you know, if they saw one, if they'd know what what it was. I think I know the answer, but <laughs> it's sad. <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah, and that's why we asked the question, Carol, because in addition to, to agriculture, humanity's other great endeavor is the practice of medicine. And long, long ago, the healers and the doctors, all they had was the botanical world and to some extent the animal world but mostly it's plants because plants are these you know essentially these nature's chemical factories all they had was the plants and the compounds that were in the plants to work with and so it was there were specific gardens in probably every community in fact one of the oldest medicinal gardens is in london it's called the chelsea physic garden and you know, way back predating pharmaceutical companies, doctors were required to have an education in botany. And where did they send these, you know, these budding doctors and, and medical students, but out to the local medicinal garden to learn the plants wow. and to learn about how to use those plants and what part of the plant was it the root or the seed or the flower or the leaf or what have you. So this was all, these are the roots of medicine that have been long forgotten, unless of course you're an herbalist who's versed and knowledgeable about how to use these plants. And of course, our indigenous communities have never forgotten about these plants, yeah, about these plant communities and their uses and their, and so I, I'm all in favor of, I, I'm not saying we need to do away with pharmaceuticals. That would be nuts, right? If, if we had not, we can't, it's the modern world, but we do need to embrace the natural world and bring these two things together. It's not one or the other, it's the dovetailing and the synchronization that can happen and that should be happening um, between those two worlds in the pursuit of treating maladies and ailments and diseases and all that sort of thing. Do you have anything to add to that, Dave? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the one of the big things that's been overlooked um, in recent decades is sort of the connection between the amount of micronutrients and phytochemicals and microbial metabolites and omega-3s in our diet in terms of what they do in terms of anti-inflammatory and, um, and antioxidant properties. And when you look at many of the chronic diseases that so affect so many of us in the developed world today, um, you know, they're rooted in inflammation uh, and they're rooted in oxidation. They're basically rooted in these long-term maintenance problems, if you will, of keeping our bodily machinery running without the, the cellular exhaust building up. Uh, 
And so a lot of these compounds that farming practices can affect, but that aren't normally considered at the forefront of nutrition because they're not rich in calories. They don't help us grow and live. They help us actually thrive rather than helping us survive. Um, those are the kind of things that in What's Your Food Ate, we write about how farming practices actually affect. So when you think about some of these connections with the botanical world, uh, we've known for a long time about the, you know, the potential for the botanical world to act in a curative manners through traditional medicines. But there's also the sort of the, the relatively underappreciated connection in terms of what a healthy diet does to just keep us healthy on a regular basis and to help you know, stem the development and progression of chronic diseases. And it's therein that I think we have a huge opportunity to really leverage um, our impact of agriculture on public health by reorienting agriculture around the soil health building practices that can once again imbue our foods with high levels of these compounds that act in anti-inflammatory and antioxidant manners uh, based on how we know now know of how they are formed and get into our crops and our and our animal foods. Yeah. Uh, and so that's what we really one of the things we're really trying to do with what your food ate is to raise awareness that when we think about our own health over the course of an entire human lifetime. We all know that our genes matter, right? What we inherit from our parents, it sets the basic nature of us. We also know that whether we get any exercise matters. We know that what we eat matters. What we, the case we're trying to make and what your food ate, that it also matters how our food is grown. And that one of the healthiest diets that we could imagine for people would be a diet of fresh whole foods grown in healthy fertile soil. And there's solid science that backs up that assertion. Not every one of us is gonna eat the healthiest of foods all the time. I mean. And will vouch for the fact that I'll still eat, you know, more ice cream occasionally than is probably good for me. But in terms of how we set up our basic food system, should we orient it towards producing large quantities of nutrient poor food? Or should we orient it towards feeding, you know, growing enough highly nutritious food to not only feed, but to nourish the world? And that's, Oh, yeah, that's, that's I mean, that's, that seems like a no brainer. You know, seven out of 10 people live with a chronic disease right now. And we, we really have to take a, a, a really good look at what we've created. We've created sick care versus wellness. And so I think sh shifting back to that, how do I get well and how do I stay well? I know when I work with my clients, uh, I much prefer them to come to me to say, you know, I feel like I'm pretty healthy, but I think I can get better. And can you help me with my diet versus somebody that comes to me and they're already so sick. And I, I feel like I can help them to a degree, but it's so much easier, you know, to do it the other way. And if we can just shift that mm -hmm. somehow, that would make a huge, huge difference. And I think that's one of the things that really in, in reading your book, that you're talking about coming from a place of, you know, how do I thrive versus how do I survive this illness? Total different mindsets and, and, and ways of being. Well, I love that you wrote this book and I love that this is, could help guide people and assist them to make, to make choices, not just for themselves, but for their family, for the planet, you know, for the environment. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, maybe the simplest way to, to, to put, you know, that one of the main messages in the book is that really we all need to start thinking about our agricultural policy as our health policy. 
In this country, we talk a lot about health insurance. And I understand that that's obviously important, but I think the more we can be talking about ag policy as health policy, it helps people see, oh, yeah, there is a connection there. And let's start organizing ourselves and our governmental systems and our economic systems to reflect that. That would, that would, I think, help address, you know, your astute observation there that right now we seem to be a society where we treat sicknesses once they get pretty bad instead of focusing on thriving and, you know, the prevention of an onset of something that, you know, just is going in the wrong direction. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I just really, I love this conversation. We could go on for probably another hour, but we're not going to do that. And I really appreciate you both being on here. We we just, the tip of the iceberg was was covered in our conversation today. So I highly recommend you get the book, What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health. I think it's a valuable asset to my collection of books that I and, you know, don't just read once, I go back to it. So, um, so where can they get your book? Oh, yeah. It, it, where, wherever books are sold. Um, okay. If someone prefers uh, their favorite online local bookstore, that's there. The big, the big A, Amazon, it's there. Brick and mortar person, go in. And if your local bookstore doesn't have it, a lot of people don't know this, but you can ask them, hey, I'm looking for this book. Can you order it? Bookstores have distribution centers and they can generally get a book in, in, you know, two, two to three days. So anywhere books are sold. Okay, great. Well, thank you, David and Ann, uh, for writing this great book. And uh, thank you to our listeners for being here today. And don't forget to check out some of my new podcasts, which are called Beyond Food Integrity, Thriving Like a Guru, where I go where I go beyond. It's not just what you put in your body. It's the whole body. Yeah, I love and, that. Yeah. So I'm excited about that. You can find that on foodintegritynow.org. Go to the menu Beyond Food Integrity and they'll be there. And just thanks for being here. Yeah. Thank you, Carol. It's a pleasure talking to you. Yeah. Yep.